Good morning and uh, welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel and our Good Friday services. Uh, I'm going to be leading us through a smaller devotional before we come to the, the main point of our service, which is to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, I'm going to be looking specifically at Romans chapter 5, and if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it there. Uh, you already know this. This is a very important day in the calendar of the church, not just here at Harvest, but globally. Uh, Today is Good Friday. Today is the day that we remember and celebrate the victory of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Friday, we remember his sacrificial, victorious death. And in our church, Saturday and Sunday, we will celebrate the guarantee of that victory, which is the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this entire weekend is about the victory of the gospel. It's declaring, again, Jesus has won. Now, before we go to Romans chapter 5, I want to pull up for us John 3.16, which I think is perhaps the most famous verse in the entire Bible. It's this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, on the screens, you can see that this verse is stacked in a different way. It's, it's stacked Because I want you to see this, there's a chain of events. Uh, Have you seen this before? That there's something that happens first, and then other things happen out of it. What is it that happens first? God loves, you see this, then Jesus is given, and then eternal life is offered. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to understand the first thing that happens. The driving force behind everything is that first phrase, for God so loved the world. That's the shout that starts the avalanche of God's blessing. God loves the world, and then Jesus is given, and then now you and I are given the opportunity through faith to believe and find eternal life. It all begins within the heart of God with his love. God does this because God loves us. The love of God sits at the core, the energizing center of this entire weekend of victory. Because the most important thing I think that you can understand, the most important thing that we all could understand is this truth, God loves me. In fact, if you were to summarize the main point of this little devotional, it's going to be this, God loves me, and then you can insert your name there. God loves me, Craig Turnbull. Why is this so important, though? This seems so basic. Why does this matter so much? Because I think we either have never heard this, never believed it, or more likely, more likely, we have forgotten it. This room is filled with forgetful people, myself included. We walk in our lives, living in our ways that speak to the reality that we do not acknowledge and we do not believe that God loves us like this. We move discouraged and defeated and broken and hurting, chasing one empty fulfillment after another. We live in sin. We are anxious for the future. We're tired of the present. We limp day after day through this life. And the message of God's word for us all today, the message that needs to be heard by every single heart, every single day that we draw breath is this, that God loves you, loves you personally. He sees you. He knows you. 
He knows the hurt. He knows the pain. He knows the loss. He knows the weariness. He knows all the days of your life. He knows how difficult some of those days have been. He knows the sickness. He knows the pain with your family. He knows the broken dreams. He knows the fears that shake you. He knows your sin. And he knows how that sin has broken things around you. And yet, and yet, God loves you. You personally. Do you believe it this morning? You say, show me. Prove it to me. Prove it to me. Well, I believe that God knows that we forget these things very easily. And so that's why we celebrate days like today. And that's why verses like the ones we're about to read are found in God's word. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? If I was to ask you about another person in your life that you genuinely believe loved you and said to you, how, how do you know that they love you? You might pick up the, the paintbrush and begin to paint a picture of how you know that that person loves you. Well, you know, they treat me with kindness. They encourage me with the right words at the right time. There's a gentle touch. They, they look after me. They care for me. They, they, they help me with things in this life. And we've gone through so much struggle and trial together. You begin to paint that picture of what love looks like from that person. In this passage, in these verses, God paints for us a masterpiece of his great love for us. How can you know that God loves you today? You need to see them. I need to see them. In fact, in our brief time that we have, I'm going to show you five amazing truths about the love of God for you today. And all of them, all of them are centered at the cross. That event, some two millennia ago, where Jesus obediently walked to the hill outside of Jerusalem and willingly laid down his life for us. How do you know that God loves you this morning? The cross says it all. The nature of God's love is so amazing. I want you to see this. He loved you even when you were powerless. Verse 6 begins, For while we were still weak. While we were weak, or even that word means sick. Do you know how you can really tell that someone loves you? They love you even when you're sick even when you can't get out of bed, even when you have no power to do anything yourself. You're weak, and try as you might. You can't do anything to help yourself except to sit and to receive. And the person who helps you, the person who steps in to give to you, they're not doing it because you can help them. They're doing it because you're powerless, and they can help you. And that's the picture the Bible paints of us. As mankind, we are weak, we are sick. The place that we are in, broken that we are in, we can't fix ourselves. We've been broken in our sin. And now with broken hands, we try and fix broken hearts, and it won't work. It's like trying to will yourself into a healthy position from a place of sickness. You can't do it. 
We're weak. We're powerless. In the early morning of his final day, that first Good Friday in the garden of the olive press, Gethsemane, outside of Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus was betrayed by a kiss by one of his closest compatriots. In the mob that accompanied this traitor, there were soldiers that were sent and armed and were seeking to arrest him, sent to arrest the creator of the universe, as if. Peter, another one of the companions, in a rash move, picks up a sword and tries to defend the Lord Jesus. But Jesus says to him, as is recorded in Matthew 26, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Don't you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I can bring 70,000 angels with a word from my voice. I don't need your sword. This is not the time for fighting. This is a time for surrendering power. Jesus then willingly goes into bondage. John's Gospel records for us that Jesus will say, I'm the man you're looking for. Let these ones go. And go they do. One of them even runs away naked to get away as fast as possible. They are fleeing to get away, and Jesus, left alone, the creator of the universe, surrenders all power that he has. He chooses to become weak, to deliver me from my weakness. What you were powerless to do, he surrendered his limitless power to accomplish. How do you know that God loves you? He loved you when you were powerless. But there's more. The kind of love that God has given is freely given. He loved you freely. The text says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. Do you see this? At the right moment in history. It's almost as if God is watching and watching and watching and saying, Not yet, not yet. Now, now is the time. Go, now is the time. You know, there, there's a perception out there, it's a wrong perception, that somehow the cross was an awful trap that the Lord Jesus Christ fell into. And a bad thing happened to a really good person, but then Jesus was able to make it right. That's so wrong, I can't even express to you how wrong that is. No, no, no. The cross of Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross was so intentional, it was so planned, and it was a free and willing gift by our Savior. Let me ask you, if you were married to a spouse and you turned to that spouse one day and said, from now on, from here on out, every day at this time, I want you to do this particular thing for me every day without fail, and then I will feel loved. And then when that person does do that, does that feel like love? Is that really love? No, that's not love. That's compelled action. You have forced them to do your will. We understand, don't we, that a gift given under compulsion, a gift given because I have to give it to you, is not a gift at all. We understand that one of the greatest ways that real, true love manifests itself, don't we, is by saying, I want to do this for you. I wanted to give this for you. I didn't have to do this, but I wanted to do this for you. 
For Jesus to be trapped and cornered and put upon a cross and to die for us, that's not love. That's compelled action. But that's not how it went down. Jesus went to the cross at the right time. When the moment was perfect, he went. Look at these verses from John chapter 10. For this reason, this is Jesus speaking, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now let me ask you this question. Does that look like Jesus loved you accidentally? Does that look like Jesus fell in backwards and then decided to love you? Does that look like Jesus had his arm behind his back and was being forced to love you? No, that looks like Jesus loving you freely because he wanted to. He chose to. On that Friday, the scene continues. And the Lord Jesus is taken before several kangaroo courts. First, the priests mock him and they strike him. And then at 9 a.m., he's brought before Pilate. Pilate is the Roman official, the only one in the province of Judea who can condemn a man to die by method of the Roman execution of crucifixion. And so this Roman feels like he's very important, and he peppers Jesus with question after question after question. And Jesus, fulfilling Scripture, remains largely silent, and Pilate gets upset. The Roman charges him and says, you will not speak with me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus says these words in John 19. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you think that you are in charge, Pilate? You, a man? No, I am in charge. I am freely choosing this path. Your will isn't being done right now. My will is being done right now. Don't you know that just with a snap of my fingers, I could remove myself from your control. If I wanted to, I could be free. If I wanted to, I could walk away, but I don't want to. I want to walk the path I'm about to walk. I want to freely love those that I will save. I choose to go into your hands. I choose to love them. Nothing will stop me from walking this path. How can you know that God loves you? In your imprisonment, in your bondage, he freely chose to love you. And this becomes all the more amazing when I show you the third truth. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can you know that God loves you this morning? The cross says it all. The nature of God's love is so amazing. He loved you even when you were unworthy. The great truth of Good Friday is not that Jesus decided to offer up his life to people who were, uh, somehow made some small mistakes or who were basically misguided but, well, but you know, well-intentioned but just missed up a little bit or some people who were essentially good. No, 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 no. The greatest truth of Good Friday is that Jesus freely decided to love those who didn't love him at all, who were completely rebellious, who were running away from him, found in, in, in loads of sin, the sin in our actions, the things that were being done and the things not done, the things, sin in our words, the words that were said that were hurtful and the words that were not said that could be helpful, the sin in our actions, the sin in our words, and then with everything I am. 
with everything I am in my self-centered life, in my strength, living for my glory, and all of it compounded, all of it compounded by the fact that I continue to walk through this life not acknowledging that there is a God or that I'm accountable to him. I live my life for me, sin. We were not worthy to be saved. But God loves us so much that he sent his son. Now that Friday continues on, and the Lord Jesus is moved from these courts and now is, is beaten and condemned and mocked by soldiers. And then he's told to pick up a 100-pound crossbeam and told to carry it to the mountain outside of Jerusalem where he will be killed. And on the way, through the crowd, he staggers, mocked and jeered along the way. Hours earlier, even, when given the opportunity to free Jesus, the Son of God, the innocent man, they choose instead the murderer. Humanity has rejected God. We don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want this one in charge of us. Our heroes are murderers. We still don't want anyone ruling over our lives. We still live our day-to-day -day life by saying, you go away, God. I know what's best for me. I know the rules I need to live by. I know how life is best lived, and it's not including you. You go away, God. I know what's best for me. Matthew 27 records the scene of the soldiers, of the governor taking Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and then they gathered the whole battalion before him, and then they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Are these people worthy to be saved? This open mockery of the creator of the universe. Are these small mistakes? Are these misguided people? Why would Jesus endure this? Because this death is the way to our life. How can you know that God loves you? The cross says it all. He chose to love you when you were unworthy to be loved. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Moment of transparency. I have a son. I have two daughters. I love them very, very much. And I, I wouldn't sacrifice the life of my children for any one of you. I wouldn't do that. But God is not like me. God so gloriously is not like me. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the fourth thing I want to show you is that he loved you with his very life. The sin that was in our heart with the very rebellious nature within us that continually desired the removal of God from us so that in his place we could be God. We wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. And we got our wish. But then with the removal of God from our lives, with the removal of the one who really truly loves us, 
We have removed the center of our being. We have hollowed out the mountain, and now the purpose in life begins to crumble, and now joy in life begins to crumble, and hope begins to crumble as our doom is sealed. In rejecting Jesus Christ, we have turned away from all hope. But what they didn't know, and what we gloriously know, is that in the death of Christ, in the work of Christ Jesus upon the cross, all of sin and all of the consequences of sin are now being smashed upon Jesus Christ as he hangs upon the cross. As the wrath of God against sin is being poured out, all of my sin is being punished. He's bearing the weight of all my guilt and all my shame, and the Lord suffers and he dies for me. He loves me even to the point of the sacrifice of his own life, the innocent life of Jesus Christ for my shame, the spotless life of Jesus Christ for my guilt. Don't you see the love of Christ for you today? Don't you see how much God loves you? Look at verse 8 again. There's a, there's a tense confusion. There's a present tense action, but God shows his love for us. God shows, that's today, every day, right now happening, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a past action. He's mixing a present right now with past action. What's he saying? He's saying, God is screaming at you right now today. I love you. Don't you see? How do you see? You look at the cross. Look at what Jesus Christ has done for you. God loves you so much. He was willing to send his son, his own son. After three hours upon the cross, Jesus' battered frame can't handle much more. He has suffered at the hands of men. He has been poured out as a drink offering and enduring the wrath of God against sin. He knows the end is near. John 19 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they took a sponge and, and, and full of the sour wine and stuck it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And then this verse, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. His life is given for you. I told you earlier that I had three kids and I wouldn't sacrifice any one of them for you. But I'll tell you what I would do. If it came down to me or them, I would sacrifice my life for them. And you as parents understand what that means. I would die for any one of my kids. And now you know how God feels about you. He loves you that much. Don't you see how much I love you, Jesus says? I will come for you in your weaknesses. I will come for you freely and willingly, not because I have to, because I want to. I will come for you even though you're lost and far from me, even though your heart doesn't want me at all. I will come for you and I will give you my life because I love you, because that's what love does. How do you know that God loves you today? The cross says it all. He loved me freely. He loved me when I didn't deserve it. He loved me when I was weak. He loved me with his life. The nature of God's love is so amazing. Let me show you this last truth. He loved you. He loved you to bring you everything. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Another way to tell how much someone loves you is by the value of a gift that's given to you. And when we look at the value of the gifts that were given to us at the cross of Christ, 
we see that these gifts are immeasurably valuable. We're not talking diamonds here. We're talking a universe filled to overflowing with diamonds. There's two gifts in verse 9. The first is that we have been justified by his blood. This is the courtroom language. And the courtroom language of justification means that, that God raising his gavel about to pronounce us as guilty in our sin. The gavel is caught midair, caught by two nail-pierced hands. It says to the judge, no, Father, not this one. This one I gave my life for. This one I have paid for in all of their sin. This one I have clothed in my righteousness. This one belongs to me. Not this one, Father. And he lets go of the gavel, and the gavel rises again, and the Father says, yes, innocent. Innocent, though you were dead in your trespasses. Innocent, though you were a sinner and far from him. Innocent, because your sins have been paid for in Jesus Christ, and you have been clothed in the righteousness of God. We have been justified by his blood because of the work of Christ. Now what's more, we have also been saved by him from the wrath of God. We do not suffer wrath. God's righteous anger against sin, because all of that anger has been poured out upon the Son of God for our behalf, willingly. Infinite atonement was made. Infinite punishment was due. And infinite punishment endured. And so now in Christ, because of the cross, because of his blood, by faith I am forgiven, I am declared righteous, and there is now no wrath against me. How do we know this is true? The cross says it all. The cross, Good Friday, is the anniversary of the greatest love that was ever shown you. On that day, even before you were born, God chose to love you freely with his life, though you were weak, though you were a sinner, to bring you everything. How great is the love of our Savior. No one has ever loved you like this. No one will ever love you like this. And when you understand this, John 3.16 begins to make more sense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the promise for us today, maybe even for you for the first time, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How great, how great is the love of our Savior. And for those of us who have now believed in him for eternal life, we turn our service to remember and declare the work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. We declare the greatness of his love for us. He has told us that we as his followers, as, as his friends now, are to in intentionally set aside time to gather together around the table and to uh, uh, share in the Lord's Supper. Uh, to remember his work with physical elements. That night before this Good Friday, long, long ago, Jesus sat in an upper room with his disciples and holding a piece of bread and holding wine, common elements of the day, he passed them around and he says, when you hold this bread, when you gather together as a body of believers, when you hold this bread and take this bread, you will remember my body that was given for you. And when you drink this wine, you will remember my blood that was poured out for you. And you will remember that I came to end all the prophecies. I came to endure the pain. I came to pay for your sin. I came to love you to the very end. And so for us, we'll take this time now, some 2,000 years later, to remember the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ as we look to the cross. All the prophecies fulfilled in him 
the pain finally and completely endured because of our sin and redemption accomplished because of his great love for us.